the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Good morning, Gloria America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt with Laryngitis. But I came in because Speaker Mike Johnson is in this morning. Good morning, Mr. Speaker. I feel fine. I just can't talk. Oh, Hugh, your voice uh, doesn't sound normal. It's painful to hear, but I'm grateful that you're soldiering on, my friend. I'm glad. You've got to do that as well. Tell us about the budget deal. I'm in favor of it. I think conservatives got the best deal they could possibly get. But what's in it and why should people support it? Well, this is actually a good deal. It's not the deal that you and I would construct and write from the beginning. But everybody has to remember, we will literally have this month the smallest majority in the history of the U.S. Congress. I think there was one Congress, the 65th Congress in 1917, 107 years ago, that had a smaller margin. We'll be down to a one-vote margin, Hugh. So we have to deal in the realm of reality. We only control one-half of one-third of the federal government, right? One chamber of Congress. So under those circumstances, we had a really good deal here. It's the first cut to non-defense spending in many years. It significantly cuts the side agreements that were negotiated last year under the Fiscal Responsibility Act, the FRA, and replaces that with $16 billion in real spending cuts. We took $10 billion more out of the IRS flush fund and that the, the Biden administration fought so hard for. Uh, we, we took uh, uh, $16 billion total, but uh, 6.1 of that comes from the COVID-era slush fund. So we, we got a lot of money for the taxpayers that saved here. And at the end of the day, we got more for defense and we cut non-defense discretionary spending. That's always been a priority of ours. And that's what we that's what we're handed here. Uh, I'd like to focus in if we could on the IRS money, uh, Mr. Speaker. I, I thought it was crazy that we're giving that money to the IRS. Kevin McCarthy got a $10 billion clawback. Yours is 20 billion. Am I correct? Well, I got 10 additional billion, so 20 billion total. And, and that is a significant thing because, as you know, that was a big focus of the Democrats uh, in, in, in recent months and, and in the last Congress. And so we're able to, to claw that back, and, and there's more of that to come. Now, I know you've got members in your caucus who wish it was more. Will they vote for it? Or alternatively, will you get enough Democrats to vote this because a government closure we will lose the House. We will lose the Senate if that happens. It's that simple. Well, that's right. We have to demonstrate that we can govern, and this is our uh, our, our effort to do that. I think we will, Hugh. I think we'll pass this. The vast majority of the conference understands this is a good deal under the given circumstances that we have, and it moves the ball forward. That's what we're about. We have to have incremental gains with a one-vote majority, a one-vote margin, um, we can't throw a Hail Mary pass on every play, right? It's three yards in a cloud of dust, and, and that's what we're doing, yard by yard, first down by first down to stay in this game. I, I believe if we can demonstrate we govern well, we are going to grow and expand this majority in the upcoming election cycle. I also think we're going to win the Senate back to the Republican Party and the White House as well. So we'll be in a totally different ball game next January, you know, a year from now. 
But right now, we've got to we've got to keep uh, advancing the ball up the field, and that's what this that's what this deal does. Have you personally endorsed anyone yet in the presidential race, uh, Mr. Johnson? I, I did. I've I endorsed President Trump, um, and I, I believe he will be the nominee. And I'm convinced he's going to win the White House again. And that's is, is the former president helping you pass this must pass deal? I'm planning to give him a call today to talk him through the details of it. Um, he's a little busy. He's got Iowa caucus and all these other things uh-huh. on the plate, right? <laughs> but um, but no, he, um, he he and I have a very close relationship. He's been an enthusiastic supporter of my leadership here, and I expect he'll be doing that again. Well, it will be catastrophic if this fails. When does it come to a vote? Uh, that's a good, good question. Th- this is the to set the top line so that our appropriators can get in the room and hash out the actual appropriations bills. Uh, we've got that deadlines coming up, um, two tranches, the first one January 19th, the second February 2nd. Uh, so w- we are pedal to the metal, trying to get those bills produced and get them on the floor to vote. And uh, I'm very optimistic that we can get this done. Okay, now I want to switch over to the immigration deal. This is different from the I believe I will I will oppose. I'll get my voice back. I'll be full bow. I will oppose any deal that does not include a wall. Will there be a wall in the immigration deal that includes Israel and Ukraine funding? Oh, well, that's a great question. It's it really is about more than the wall, though. You're right. That's a critical priority. But we passed HR two uh, almost eight months ago, and that was our you know signature piece of legislation that secured the border because we restored the Remain in Mexico policy that worked so effectively under the Trump administration. We ended the catch and release program. You know, Secretary Mayorkas admitted uh, over the last week that 85 percent of the people that are coming across that border illegally are just released into the country. And I took 64, 64 of us, House Republicans, went down to Eagle Pass, to the epicenter, just last week and saw it with their own two eyes. It is an absolute catastrophe. So we, we've got to restore those policies that work. We do need to re- rebuild the wall. And uh, we, we need to make sense of, of the, uh, the asylum process and the... Uh, and the parole process that are broken. And I, that's what our bill did. It's been sitting on Chuck Schumer's desk for that many months collecting dust. Right now there's a negotiation in the Senate and between the White House and the Senate on some sort of, uh, I guess, uh, proposal that would solve this. But we have yet to see the text of it. And I'll just say I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, Hugh. We'll have to see what develops. Well, let, let me repeat, though, very specifically. I am looking for one thing and one thing only. If the wall is not in there, authorized and appropriated, construction underway before anything else kicks in. I mean, really, notwithstanding any other law language, you know the language to write, Mr. Speaker, I will be against it. Will that kind of language, that kind of guarantee of 900 miles of wall be in this bill or you will you will not support it? Well, we're, we're fighting for it vigorously. We, we tied the border fight. You mentioned Ukraine funding and all the supplemental funding. You know, the president came forward with his national security supplemental proposal, and we said those are not issues to be uh, tied together. Israel and Ukraine are separate and distinct. We have to support Israel as a top priority. Ukraine's important as well. But we cannot be involved in securing the border of Ukraine or other nations until we secure our own. And so that border fight is coming, and we're going to die on that hill, Hugh. I mean, that is critically important to the American people. By the way, it's about an 80-20 issue. I mean, uh, 80% of the country says it's an emergency or a serious issue that must be addressed. So uh, we're fighting for it. The wall is a critical piece of that. Uh, but I'll tell you, the Remain in Mexico policy, for example, when we were down on the border, uh, the Border Patrol agents uh, and the sheriffs who are in charge of patrolling down there doing their dead-level best, they said if the president would issue an executive order tomorrow to reinstate Remain in Mexico, they think that would stem the flow by like 70%. 
because it would send a message around the world that we don't have an open welcome mat. You can't just come in here like this illegally. You've got to stay in Mexico until your case is adjudicated. That alone is a simple fix that President Biden has refused to even acknowledge or, or do anything about. And it's well, well, I agree with that. There are a lot of things that are necessary but not sufficient. But the most necessary, the most necessary thing is the wall. And yeah. so if you're laying out the stuff on the hills on which you will die, you've got to, I think, communicate to the Senate that you're going to not support a deal that doesn't have the wall in it. Are you communicating that? I've communicated it directly. I said all the elements of H.R. 2, the functional equivalent of it in the wall, is a big piece of that, um, of course, with these other policy changes. But, you know, the, some of these policy changes are interlocking, and so you, you really need all of them to, to get that down. I, I'll tell you this. The chief deputy of the U.S. Border Patrol told us in his own words, we were down there, he said, I feel very much like we're, we're supposed to be administering an open fire hydrant. He said, I don't need more buckets. I don't need more funding to process illegals. He said, I need them to turn off the flow. And that's what we are working to do. And the wall, to your point, you is a big piece of that. Yeah, and I just, I think the base will desert you and and we will lose the majority if we don't come up with the wall. They have to give us the wall. They want everything else. We want everything else. They have to give us the wall. Now, Mr. Speaker, when you call the former president, um, do you expect him to be up to up to speed on the details of this budget deal because it's been so cloaked in darkness i don't know that he is well that's part of my uh, my role is to keep him apprised of that and, and i will we've had some very thoughtful discussions about all the spending uh negotiations and and the big heavy decisions i've had to make since i became speaker which was about 75 days ago and uh president trump has been uh has been very very supportive and um i, I expect he will as well i'll give him a, i'll give him a, a read in on this and uh all right now, can I switch over to practical politics? We need to hold the House. That means you need candidates. How is your recruitment and your fundraising going? Exceptional. You exceptional. It's a great blessing. I mean, right out of the blocks, we've been uh, setting records with new numbers of donors coming in. Uh, we should get some some uh, official numbers here shortly. But uh, I, I know that it's uh, tens of billions, of, millions, billions, tens of millions of dollars that we've raised in the last 75 days. Uh, billions. That, that's what's going to be you. Um, I need to raise about $330 million by next fall between all the efforts. Uh, but I tell you what, we've got an extraordinary stable of candidates that we've recruited. I mean, people who are workhorses and not show ponies that have great life stories, business acumen, veterans, women, minorities. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary field. I think it's the best field of candidates that we've had and the seats were challenging in a long, long time. And, of course, our incumbents are running well, too. Surprisingly, you, to many people, it may seem counterintuitive. We're running really strong in the deep blue states with our Republicans. Oh, I, w- I was with Sean, uh, Michelle Steele and with Young Kim on Saturday morning. I think Scott Baugh is going to win out here. I think the mayor of Sacramento is going to win. I think we're going to win if you raise the money, if you get the president behind them, and if you get the wall. If you don't get the wall, I don't know that we'll ever talk again, but I know you'll get the wall. Speaker Mike Johnson, congratulations on bringing home a good conservative, the best deal that can be had. I hope the Freedom Caucus gets on board. Keep coming back, Mr. Speaker. My voice will be back next week. Good morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I've got laryngitis, the most annoying of um, illnesses. You feel perfect. You look good. You have nothing wrong with you whatsoever. But you sound like you've been hit by a bulldozer. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do this segment this way. Then I'm going to take some more prednisone and wait for two hours and come back to talk to Speaker Johnson. And who's coming along in hour three. Speaker Johnson wants to talk about the deal which needs to pass Congress this week. 
And I'm going to come back and maybe have a little bit more than this. I know it's gaining up for you. I hope you can hear it. And then Generalissimo, I may come back at the start of hour two for the podcast purposes. But Generalissimo will handle most of the show and especially the DeSantis town hall last night. I did want to call your attention to a couple of headlines because they aggravate me. Uh, I know that storms across the country have killed four to six people. I know incredible losses have been absorbed from the south to the north and more coming today. Tornadoes, blizzards, floods. It was, a, it was a bad day yesterday in the United States. Our prayers are with you. In Israel, it was a bad day yesterday. Nine Israeli soldiers were killed in a single day. Um, an errant Israeli shell uh, that was fired at a suspicious location ended up detonating an area where combat engineers were diffusing a rig tunnel. So nine Israeli soldiers killed, and then a tenth was killed late last night. A reserve combat medic. The ground toll operation in Israel is 186 people. Multiply that by 3,300. Uh, excuse me. Multiply that by 3,300 by 33, and you will have a good estimate of what an equivalent loss of life would be in the United States. The United States Navy shot down a barrage of Houthi drones and missiles yesterday. Lloyd Austin is still the Secretary of Defense. Do we have Peter Ducey talking to? Um, John Kirby, somewhere on the cut sheet here. What number is that? This is this is really quite amazing because Peter makes the most important point. Um, John Kirby. It's cut two. It's cut number two. Here we go. More broadly, why should we believe anything that this administration tells us about anything ever again? I think we all recognize, and I think the Pentagon has been very, very honest with themselves about... Uh, the um, the challenge to, to, to credibility by what by what has transpired here and by what and by uh, uh, how 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 hard it was for them to be fully transparent with the American people. I think we all recognize that. And and wait, wait, wait now, just give me a second. Now I, I know you got another one coming here, but but we all recognize that this didn't unfold the way it should have on so many levels, not just the notification process up the chain of command, but the transparency issue. We all recognize that. It, it doesn't matter if you recognize it. Lloyd Austin is still the secretary of defense. He should have been fired. I, I gave a speech last night like this up the microphone a lot to the Legatus chapter. Legatus is a group of wonderful men and women who are Catholic and they, they do everything they can to support the church. And I asked how many of you are veterans, and there are a significant number of veterans, and there were a couple of reservists. How many of you could leave your post for five days, not tell anyone that you were going under general anesthetic, not tell anyone where you were, and not be relieved of your command? And they all agreed, and there isn't a military person out there who wouldn't agree, that they're in a position of command, and they go AWOL for five days, they're fired. The non-firing of Lloyd Austin reflects not only on his judgment, which was terrible, but on President Biden or President Bumble, his judgment, which is terrible. The speech I gave last night, by the way, I want to give you the summary of it. You can choose to be St. Augustine or you can choose to be St. Bede. St. Augustine was a bishop of Hippo around 400 A.D., maybe to 430 A.D. And as he died, the vandals grew close to his, the barbarians came over the wall as he was dying. 
and his books and his sermons and his life reflected that the world was going to hell around him and it looked like the great darkness was descending. And it did descend. Rome had already pulled out of Great Britain. Then a couple of popes sent a couple of saints to Canterbury. And between the years 600 and 750, they rebuilt the Roman Catholic Church in England. And the Venerable Bede writes at the end of that, wow, this is great. He's upbeat. I mean, it's still the Dark Ages. There's exactly one book from England for 600 years. But this is a book that Bede writes, upbeat. I'm going to work on this and this and this. I'm going to find the good and praise it. And then I named these Catholic people. There are, you got to support your local parish. You have to support a parachurch ministry. And I believe in the fellowship of Catholic university students focus, which is on 200 campuses, 500 full-time staff, 800 missionaries. If you're Catholic, you should be supporting focus. And then I ran down a list of them, which I had developed in consultation with some people, including Archbishop Chip Hugh. Where is Catholic education in best shape? Hillsdale, of course, 40% of their students are Catholic. They're the most Catholic Christian university I've met. I mean, they, they don't call themselves Roman Catholic. They're Christian. But 40% of the Hillsdale students are Catholic. And they're going every Mass every week more often than that. They have a wonderful fellowship. It's a great place. You invest in Hillsdale. You get involved. I mentioned Franciscan University of Steubenville. I mentioned, you probably haven't heard of this, the University of Mary in Nebraska, Bismarck, North Dakota. Excuse me, not Nebraska. The University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. 3,500 undergraduates, great kids, great scholars recruit there. I talked about Franciscan University of Steubenville. I talked about Thomas Aquinas in Santa Paula. The Catholic University in Washington, D.C. has done a marvelous job. Benedictine College in Focus in Kansas. So you've got Benedictine in Kansas, the Catholic University in America in D.C., Thomas Aquinas in Santa Paula, California, University of Mary in Bismarck, and the Franciscan University in Steubenville and Hillsdale. So you go find one of those, and you get involved. You offer to serve on one of their advisory groups. You send them a check. You find out what they're doing. At Hillsdale, there are a million courses to take. You become Bede, not St. Augustine. You're not going to be Bede or St. Augustine. But you try and figure out what you're going to do, how you're going to approach the world, what you're going to involve yourself in. Now, I'm a big proponent of politics. I had Dave McCormick on yesterday. If you're living in Pennsylvania or a surrounding state, you ever living in northeastern Ohio, Sherrod Brown's toast. Whoever wins the primary there is going to beat Sherrod Brown. But you ought to be driving over and helping Beaver Falls and Sharon. And God forgive me, you've got to go to Pittsburgh and help the Republicans in Pittsburgh organize for Dave Montgomery. You've got to pick Tim Sheehy in Montana. You've got to pick Kerry Lake in Arizona. There are a few other places where a Republican can win the Senate. We have to win this election. Stop complaining and get to the business of winning elections. First, you must win. And you can't throw your money away or your time on your friends. You take $5, $10, $100, whatever you can. You invest it in a college where they're doing good work and they're renewing America. And you invest it in a candidate who's committed to the same. I'm you and I feel fine. I have laryngitis. And so what I'm going to do is come back next hour 
talk with Speaker Mike Johnson, and I'm turning it. I've been doing all the production work this morning. Dwayne and I changed places. Uh-huh. So I'm busy producing the show, and Dwayne is hosting the show today. So take it away, Dwayne. I will be back next hour and hopefully have a little bit more voice. I hope so, too. Thanks, Hugh. Um, I'm going to cover this segment and a little bit of the next segment, uh, Ron DeSantis's town hall that he did on Fox yesterday. Of course, the mad uh, sprint to the finish of the Iowa caucus and nine days later, the New Hampshire primary. Uh, there's going to be competing events tonight on CNN and on Fox. On CNN, there will be a straight-up debate between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. At the same time, Donald Trump will be holding a town hall, much in the same vein that Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley did in previous nights on Fox News with Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. Uh, but Ron DeSantis had his turn on Fox last night. And here is what he told Brett Baer and Martha McCallum as his uh, selling point. Cut 20. First of all, just to boil down this choice on caucus night, uh, Donald Trump's running for his issues. Nikki Haley's running for her donors' issues. I'm running for your issues, your family's issues, and to turn this country around. And that's my sole focus. And I think you can see an indication of who represents the biggest threat to the current order of things in Washington, because we need a change agent in Washington. Rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic isn't going to work. They have spent more money attacking me than all the other Republicans have faced combined. They've spent more money attacking me than Biden and Trump combined in this election cycle. Uh, the media, I mean, who does the media not want to be the candidate? Me. They're after me all the time. But, you know, I view that for Republican voters. That should be an endorsement of me. If the media doesn't want me, if they're trying to do everything they can to stop me, well, I must be doing something right, and I must be a good candidate for you. So I I wear that as a badge of honor. I think what you're seeing us do in Iowa is do it the old-fashioned way. You're lining up people who are committing to caucus for you. We have massive numbers of people. I think we have more commits than anyone's ever had uh, in an Iowa caucus. We have all the counties organized. People that have been involved in this process say it's the best yet. That's not something that necessarily is a poll or not, because a poll is based on who's going to turn out and who's not. Our people are turning out. And so uh, for those who are supporting us, thank you. Anyone who's undecided, uh, I'm the guy that will get this done for this country. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I like in Florida is people will come up to me who didn't vote for me in the primary when I ran for governor in 2018. And they'll say, yeah, I didn't vote for you, man. That was the worst vote I ever did. Like, you've done a great job. I couldn't be happier. And even some people that voted for me in the primary would say, you know, I really liked you. I thought you'd be a good governor. You did so much better than even I could have imagined. So isn't it time, instead of having people over-promise and under-deliver, that you have somebody that makes bold promises and over-delivers on those promises? Let's stop under-delivering. More Ron DeSantis, cut number 21. Well, well, first, I mean, you know, it's tough for me to take uh, something from somebody that goes to another state and then says Iowa's votes need to be corrected. Um, you know, I found that to be deeply offensive. I've traveled all 99 counties. I've met folks here in Iowa. Uh, folks here represent the best of America. They're patriotic, hardworking, God-fearing. That's what we need to engineer a comeback of this country. Uh, so uh, she can swoop in here and try to do that. But what she did was wrong. Uh, it's not just Nikki Haley that Ron DeSantis went after a little bit there. He also took after the former president in this cut, cut 23, Harley. Look, I, I just think there's clearly people in the Democratic Party who look and say, 
you know what? This guy is a, a few fries short of a happy meal. That's just the reality, okay? And, and, and I, I see that. Uh, most Americans see that. So what are the Democrats going to do um, going forward? I can tell you uh, I would love to run against Biden. Uh, I'm not going to let him hang out in his basement. We would run him ragged around this country. Um, I would love to be able to be in a debate with Biden and be able to hold him accountable uh, for his policies. But the reality is, is there's a lot of talk. That's part of the reason I did it on Fox with Sean Andy. I debated the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. People are like, well, why are you doing that? Well, one, I mean, if I can get on national TV for 90 minutes, I'm going to take that opportunity. But two, I do think you as Republican voters need to ask which candidate would be able to go toe-to-toe with some of these other Democrats who they may run. Uh, you know, Donald Trump's not been willing to debate at all uh, this time. We don't know how, how he would fare. Obviously, he struggled against Biden in that first debate in 2020. That's just, unfortunately, the fact. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to go against anyone they throw at us, but there is definitely a possibility that it is not Biden. Ron DeSantis took a question about the FBI agents uh, targeting parents that go to school board meetings and had this to say about that. Cut 24. Scott, thank you for the question. It's an easy answer. Yes. And we're going to do it on day one. We're going to be ready to go because here's the thing. Those agencies have become weaponized. I mean, you look at what they've done. I mean, I first saw it when I first ran for Congress. I had groups in my district where the IRS was targeting those conservative groups back there in 2012. And it's like a small nonprofit that's just talking about the Constitution. Under Obama, they did it. No one was held accountable for doing that. Then you had the Russia collusion where they went after President Trump. Uh, false theory about stealing the 16 election. They kneecapped him any way they could. Nobody was held accountable for that. So you're going to keep getting these outcomes until you have a president that comes in and drops the hammer. Our founding fathers understood that if power is allowed to accumulate, human nature being what it is, it is going to be abused. They, they assume that the elected president would not let it happen. Honestly, they also assume that Congress would use its power of the purse to rein in these rogue agencies. And Congress doesn't do that. They put the government on autopilot with these continuing resolutions and these omnibus bills. So they have defaulted on their responsibility to do it in Congress. But I will do it as president. And what does that look like? On day one, you'll have a new director of the FBI. You're going to have new people in the Department of Justice. I'm going to take parts of those agencies. I'm going to move them out of D.C. I disagree with Donald Trump, who wants to Donald Trump wants to build a massive new FBI headquarters over a billion dollars in Washington, D.C. That doesn't drain the swamp. That deepens the swamp. I'm taking that out of Washington, D.C. We're going to take power out of there. But here's the thing. Those are not independent agencies. There's a canard in Washington that the Beltway Press will say, oh, the president can't be involved in the Department of Justice. Uh, that's politicizing it. No, if they're independent of, of who the elected president is, that means they're unaccountable. You don't want unaccountable power for people who can put you in jail and people that have guns. They need to be held accountable. So if an FBI agent is going after parents, going to school board meeting, I'm firing those people. If the FBI is colluding with big tech to censor dissent in this country, I'm firing those people. If the FBI is passing around memos saying observant Catholics are potential terrorists, I'm firing those people. So there's going to be a reckoning, and not just for those agencies. There's going to be a reckoning for the agencies that plunge this country into lockdown during COVID. 
Anthony Fauci, CDC, NIH, all those agencies, FDA, you're going to see major accountability because if we want to change the way this government operates, you've got to hold the people accountable who are responsible for the madness. And I will do that. Resonated well with the audience. One more cut from the town hall last night. In Iowa, of course, a very religious state, a very uh, pro-life state, uh, Ron DeSantis exploited a little discrepancy in Donald Trump's record on the life uh, issue in this cut, cut 22. Well, I think this is actually a way I can take both the first and the second part of your question, uh, because, you know, I think it is important to stand for a culture of life. I'm the only one running that has actually enacted protections for the sanctity of life. I'm the only one that's been able to do that. And you learn with these people, right? <laughs> All right. All right. Well, you guys, that was a mistake. You guys didn't get that one right. Okay. So, so I do think it's important to, um, I think it's important that we do that. And I'm the only one running that's actually enacted protections for the sanctity of life. Uh, Iowa has done, of course, with, with Harpy legislation. Um, and you're right. When, when Dobbs came down, uh, most people were like, OK, well, now states have the ability to protect life and different states obviously are going to approach it differently. But, you know, the former president, Trump, who who said he was pro-life, he attacked pro-life legislation like the heartbeat bill here in Iowa and said it was a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, now, that was not what he said when he was president, because he spoke at the March for Life in January of 2020. If you watch that speech, he said that life is a gift from God. He said the unborn was made in the image of God. He said that there need to be protections to welcome people uh, into the world. And yet now he's saying it's a terrible, terrible thing. So I don't know how you can flip from saying what he said in the March for Life to now saying what he's saying here uh, about things that have been done in Iowa and South Carolina. A little more from Ron DeSantis, this time at a press conference after the break. Welcome back, America. Dwayne Patterson in for Hugh Hewitt. I love election season. I really do. Because it's accountability. Accountability is what makes things work. If you are, uh, unfortunately, find yourself in like a 12-step program, the reason they work when they work is because you have somebody that you're accountable to. You have a sponsor that you have to be accountable to. If you are, if, if a member of government, if a government is going to work when it works, the politicians are accountable to the people in direct elections. That's when governments work. Um, if you're in a small group in church, Instead of attending a big uh, congregation on Sunday, if you do a, a midweek Bible study, a small group, it's those small groups when you've got people that you're accountable to. That's when things work at their best. That's what makes, that's the secret to my PhD weight loss. That is what makes our friends at MyPhDWeightLoss.com such a successful program. It's not a fad diet. It's not pills. It's not drugs. It's a fairly standard diet that helps you lose weight, but you are accountable. There is a nutritionist that is assigned to you that you have to talk to every week, sometimes more than once a week if the situation warrants. And if you don't lose the weight that you think you should be losing, 
then the call comes and the call, you know, Rachel's my nutritionist. And if I didn't lose, you know, three to five pounds in a given week, if I only lost a pound, I'm thinking, okay, what did I do wrong? And she's, she'll say, okay, let's go over what you ate, when you ate it, the decisions you made. There is an accountability process and the accountability goes after the weight loss. Like I lost 50 pounds. It goes well beyond that. She still calls me and I'm still accountable to her a year and a half later. Uh, 864-644-1900 is where you go to get started. The program works if you just commit to it and are determined to lose the weight. They will help you do that. MyPhDWeightLoss.com, 864-644-1900. We mentioned last hour with uh, Mary Catherine Hamm about James Madison High School and how they are booting kids to remote learning or treating it like a teledoc uh, situation where if you need a teacher, call them with the actual students and using the school now to house illegals. Ron DeSantis gave a press conference yesterday after his State of the State, and he was livid about that. Here's what he said. Cut 19. I think it's disgraceful. I mean, just think about it. You're a parent in the Bronx. Was it Brooklyn or the Brooklyn? You're a parent in Brooklyn. It's a lot, you probably got a lot of single moms who are putting who are the breadwinner, so they've got to work during the day. Your kids, you, your kids are supposed to go to school, and then someone tells you, "Sorry, uh, your kids have to stay home." Why? Was there some type of real significant storm or some some emergency? Was there a flu outbreak? Well, why are they having to stay home? They're having to stay home because the state government is commandeering or the city government is commandeering the school to house illegal aliens. You talk about putting Americans last. You're having these kids, you're depriving these kids of in-person education to be able to house people that don't have a right to be here uh, to begin with. That's Joe Biden's America in a nutshell. Uh, So I think it's disgraceful that that's happening. But I think this, um, you know, when I'm president, this immigration stuff, we're building a big consensus in this country because, you know, some of these areas in New York City, these are very liberal voters usually, but they they are almost all of them saying this can't go on like this. You can't just have schools overtaken, hospitals overrun, uh, people coming in. We don't even know who they are. So by this has been one of Biden, probably the biggest failure, just simply because he has more control over this. Uh, there's certain things president may not have direct control over. He, he is causing this. Uh, he could stop it, and he's choosing not to stop it. You want- January is also state of the state season. All the nation's governors give their uh, addresses of how good or bad the state is doing. Of course, all 50 governors think their state is doing the best it's ever been. That's just kind of how these state of the states go. Ron DeSantis gave his in Tallahassee yesterday. Here's just one little bit that he said, cut 18. Florida is the state for fiscal responsibility and for economic freedom. The recklessness of spending, borrowing, and printing of money over the past four years by the federal government has driven up the cost of everything from groceries to housing and has saddled Americans with high interest rates. The national debt now stands at an astounding $34 trillion. In New York City, there's a famous debt clock that shows the national debt going up in real real time. I'd like to see one of those made for Florida's debt 
Only a Florida debt clock would be counting down, not up, because we have paid down nearly 25% of our state's debt over the past four years. Imagine that. So Ron DeSantis reversed the debt clock in Florida. Coming up after the break, Chairman Mike Gallagher of the House Select Committee on China. We have lots to talk to him about. Welcome back, America. Dwayne Patterson in for Hugh, 33 minutes past the hour. Joined by the chairman of the House Select Committee on China, Mike Gallagher from the state of Wisconsin. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm great, Dwayne. How are you? I'm doing great. I want to talk to you about the Lloyd Austin debacle, and it is a debacle on every every possible measure. The question I want to ask you to get into it, and I know you, you've had a statement uh, I don't know if, on behalf of the committee or, or yourself, and I'll let you kind of expand on that in a second, but I want to ask you, since your focus is pretty much China these days, what do you suppose the CCP took away from Lloyd Austin being AWOL for a week and Biden not even knowing it? Well, it certainly makes the administration look incompetent, uh, look like it's on autopilot. And beyond the incident itself, the fact that Biden usually, and it looks like in this case, fails to hold anybody accountable, whether it's after the ignominious surrender to terrorists in Afghanistan uh, or other foreign policy failures, I also think sends a signal of weakness. The fact is that right now, American troops in the Middle East are under fire from Houthi rebels, from other Iranian proxies, and the Secretary of Defense went AWOL, uh, which is something that a sergeant or a captain would have been fired for doing. He not only went AWOL, his deputy was on vacation and didn't know where he was. They didn't inform the White House. At the time, we're also taking action in the Middle East, which the Secretary of Defense has to authorize. So the whole thing is fiasco. There's been a complete lack of transparency. It further makes the Biden administration look ham-handed, look like it's on autopilot. It is unwilling to adjust. It's unwilling to change its team. And therefore, American deterrence is suffering. It's crumbling in the Middle East. I fear it's eroding in the Indo-Pacific. And if we continue on this course, we're going to find ourselves stumbling into a shooting war with China. So we need adults in charge. This foreign policy team is not up to the task. And the president himself fails to hold anybody accountable for their failures. Chairman Gallagher, are you also on armed services as well? I forget. I am. Yes. Um, so the boss, Mike Rogers, the chairman of uh, HASC, House Armed Services Committees, to make sure I don't have to contribute to the to the uh, Mike Gallagher jar. Um, I, I spelled out the acronym. Mike Rogers apparently is going to open up a an investigation or a hearing or probe into this whole affair. What do you think that's going to look like? How, how, how tangibly is that going to uh, uh, manifest itself in the coming weeks? Well, I think we should have a hearing with the secretary um, once he's recovered, uh, as well as the deputy secretary, and ask some very hard but important questions about their decision making, about how the process broke down. What is the standard operating procedure for informing the White House? Who is in charge of the National Command Authority? I think that would lend itself to a very productive hearing. Now, I'm sure they're not eager to answer those questions, but that's the job. Uh, and the American people need accountability. Uh, they're not going to get it from Biden himself. And that's why in our system of government, we don't vest power in any one person or one branch of government. We have a legislative branch and an executive branch. 
And this is a clear-cut case where the legislative branch needs to step up and do serious oversight of the executive branch so something this foolish doesn't happen again. So I salute Chairman Rogers for saying that he's going to open an investigation. I hope it will be not only a, a sort of behind-the-scenes investigation, but an open hearing in which we are able to ask some very difficult questions of the Pentagon. Because, again, this is unacceptable, particularly given the tense geopolitical situation in the Middle East, particularly given the fact that all of America's enemies are watching everything we do. We have to have to ask some hard questions in the Pentagon about this. Totally agree. Um, Dwayne Patterson for Hugh, joined by House Select Committee on China Chairman Mike Gallagher. I want to turn to the rounds that Speaker Johnson is making. Uh, to kind of tout the spending bill that he kind of has a tentative deal on. And there's probably going to be the need for maybe a CR to kind of bridge the gap a little bit. But have you seen much of this spending deal? Do you know kind of what's in it? Are you okay with it? Is there going to be blowback to the Speaker from, uh, you know, the, the, the Freedom Caucus? Where, where are we at with this spending deal? Well, first of all, Dwayne, do you ha- do you wear the same glasses as Hewitt? Is that a requirement for hosting the show? Because I see them in the graphic behind you, and I'm just wondering if that is what you must put on in order to host. These the are show. I didn't see Morgan Ortega's wearing. These are these are standard issue uh, radio uh, host glasses. Yes, for this show. I, I support them. I also support the fact that you didn't launch a preemptive attack against my playoff-bound Green Bay Packers, as Hugh Hewitt normally does. So I welcome you hosting as often as possible, particularly on Wednesdays at 7.30. It's a much more comfortable – it's a safe space, Dwayne. It's a safe space. Just make sure sure the pack doesn't lose, because if they lose, you may hear it. I know. God forbid – no, God forbid both of our teams win, and there's a Browns-Packers showdown at some point. Oh, good Lord. I I don't even want to – that's that's about as bad as pulling the Houthis off the terrorist list, is is having that kind of a a scenario line up. To to answer your question, um, from what I've seen in my initial analysis of the deal, um, and we were made aware of it about two days ago – is that it hews pretty closely to what uh, the former Speaker Kevin McCarthy negotiated under the Fiscal Responsibility uh, sure Act, does. Uh, which I think is sensible. And it, it, re- it represents for the first time in a long time uh, the first cut in non-Veterans Administration, non-defense appropriations in years. Because usually the non-defense spending is tethered tightly to the defense Spending, uh, so you can quibble with this or that, but that in itself uh, constitutes um, a win for conservatives. There's also 16 billion in additional real cuts to Democratic spending priorities from the level set in the Fiscal Responsibility Act, and um, the process itself, I think, is better than waiting for a Christmas Eve omnibus like the one last Christmas, right. where Congress passed a four point. One, a 4,000-page, $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bills, which is one of the worst government funding bills in the history of Congress. So, of course, it's not perfect. Um, of course, we want to go further. But given that we only have control of the House of Representatives in a very narrow, very, very narrow majority in divided government, uh, I think it's good that we're shifting the overall direction of U.S. spending in a conservative direction. It wasn't an easy negotiation, but it also, I think, positions us better to fight for border policy changes in a separate adjacent discussion and negotiation um, tying Ukraine funding 
to border policy changes. So if we're able to do this through regular order, cue to the Fiscal Responsibility Act, continue to push conservative spending changes, it actually improves our chances of getting a good deal when it comes to the southern border. And just tell me, uh, with the Knucklehead Caucus, tell me that all's quiet on the motion to vacate uh, front if, uh, if the spending bill goes through. You know, I, I honestly don't know. I, I, I heard that some of them were making noise yesterday about a motion to vacate being on the table. Um, Do they know how disastrous that another... would be in an election year? How disastrous that would be? Yeah, I mean, we already wasted a month of our lives uh, before. Um, doing it again uh, doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I'm not sure that it, the the next speaker would be in a better position to negotiate right. uh, with the White House because it would just make us look so structurally weak as a caucus. So I hope we don't go that route. I know that Speaker Johnson is a true conservative. He's doing the best he can to manage the various factions in the caucus um, and, again, fight for conservative policy priorities. You're never going to get 100 percent of what you want when you have divided government. All the more reason why we should seek to retire Joe Biden, uh, retire a lot of the octogenarian senators on the Democratic side who don't need to be there and have strong majorities in the House and the Senate to truly pass through transformative conservative policy changes in the next Congress. Right now, we really just need to hold the line against uh, terrible policies coming out of the White House. Uh, I want to get back to your purview in Congress, which is the House Select Committee on China, and taking a look at the CCP very, very closely. Uh, we're not the only ones having an election coming up. Taiwan is having elections coming up, and the CCP is stepping up uh, overt spying of Taiwan ahead of those elections. What do you make of this provocative move? How is Taiwan reacting to it, and what should our play be in the region? Well, mark your calendars. Uh, in three days, uh, our time, January 13th, uh, there will be uh, elections in Taiwan What they're trying to do is influence the election itself. And it's not just an unprecedented tempo of military and espionage pressure on Taiwan. It's low-level economic warfare. It's um, tariffs uh, threatening to to rip up a 2010 trade agreement between Taiwan uh, and China, all in an effort to undermine the Democratic Progressive Party and improve the electoral chances of uh, the KMT, which is much more pro-China. So this is just pure interference in the Taiwanese election. And I think further just illustrates the difference between these two political systems. On one side of the strait, you have a flourishing democracy, one of the freest uh, societies uh, in the world. And then on the other side of the strait, you have a techno-totalitarian regime that wants to export its model of totalitarianism throughout the region and around the world. So it's important that we stand strongly by Taiwan. It could very well be the case that the outcome delivers the DPP in power in terms of the presidency with Lai Ching-te, William Lai, uh, winning the election. That seems like the most likely outcome, but delivers the legislative yuan to uh, the KMT and the TPP, which is the third party that's in the race. So you could sort of have mixed government that would create an interesting challenge going forward. Uh, I think that if the DPP wins, China will get even more aggressive in terms of its ambitions to take Taiwan by force. Xi Jinping just delivered a New Year's message saying that reunification is inevitable. We have to take him seriously when he repeatedly threatens to take Taiwan by force if necessary. I have no doubt that he would prefer to take Taiwan without having to fire a shot. He would prefer to achieve his lifelong ambition using political warfare. 
But one of the lessons of Ukraine is that dictators like Xi or uh, major deciders, to use uh, John Kerry's euphemism, uh, are willing to use yep. force to territorial conquest. And the more we discount that likelihood, like President Biden has repeatedly done, the more dangerous we of a situation we find ourselves in. As fine of a summary as you will ever hear, although it just cost Mike Gallagher $20 in the, into the uh, acronym jar because he used a lot of letters there. Uh, real quick as we go out, uh, Hugh puts you in uh, in his column on Fox. He puts you on the short list for Donald Trump's uh, VP and or Secretary of Defense. What do you make of that real quick? Uh, Hugh has been drinking too much by himself, I think. That's what I, I make it. But someone needs to check in on his mental health, I think. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's, a, that's a fair analysis. Chairman Mike Gallagher, thank you very much. We'll talk to you again next week. Go back and do the nation's work on the House Select Committee on China. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. 51 minutes past the hour. Welcome back, America. Dwayne Patterson in for Hugh. Joined now by Mary Catherine Hammer, or Mary Catherine Ham, Getting Hammered podcaster extraordinaire. You can catch everything she writes over on Twitter X at MK Hammer. Uh, Mary, good morning. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm good. As a mom of many smalls, I have two stories for you to get you to react to, and then we'll talk a little 2024 stuff. First, the New York Post lets us know yesterday that uh, one Anthony Fauci, he being science and all, is not convinced yet that kids suffered learning loss. Mary Catherine Ham, what Mm -hmm. do you say to that? It is so uh, wildly insane to just deny that this happened. I mean, even even the most teachers union-y, teachers union leaders have just copped to the fact that, okay, this part definitely got messed up. Anthony Fauci will say anything. It is remarkable. Like, if you'll say this, you will say anything, because this is the one universally agreed-upon cost of COVID Ask uh, restrictions. Any teacher. I'm married Anyone. to a fifth grade teacher in public schools. It's extraordinary the learning loss that took place. Yeah, and, and just to, the audacity to say it out loud to Congress after all that we've been through is just amazing. He sh- I mean, this is the reason he should not be trusted on basically anything. Ever again. Frankly, it it seemed fairly obvious from maybe a month in, even before that that was the case. But it's gotten even worse if you're here. 
Which is surprising that he was able to get worse. Yes, absolutely. I also want to talk about what's going on at James Madison High School up in New York City. I, I, I almost chuckle a little bit, except it's really not funny. But on one level, it kind of is just bizarre. So the kids that are students of James Madison High School in New York City are now, as of today, in remote learning. Not because of a pandemic, not because of you know masking guidelines, not because of an outbreak, but because the school now needs to be a home for illegal migrants and their children. So they are moving the students out of school on a computer so that they can basically use the school as room and board for illegals. Mary Catherine Ham. Right. So this is the thing that everyone but Anthony Fauci admits is a terrible way of teaching children. By the way, I saw an alert this morning that there's not even actually Zoom instruction. Their teachers will be available should they email them (laughs) to talk, (laughs) but there will be no actual instruction. So the, the thing is that in New York City and in many major metro areas during COVID and now during this crisis, which, by the way, is of the Biden administration's making, um, children come last and their education doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter what they have to go through. And it doesn't matter that you uh, that you pull uh, the chains of parents uh, on a moment's notice to say, oh, your kids are at home today. None of that matters to leaders in New York City. And by the way, there are a lot of people who will say you're being cartoonish if you say, well, the Democratic Party and its allies care more about illegal immigrants than they do about Americans. Their actions show it. Their actions show it. This is literally that, right? And then, of course, there's a problem with the actual border, which which is they'll tell you, oh, maybe you shouldn't be uh, shipping these immigrants here to to New York, uh, Texas. Oh, so they should be in these small towns of Texas who somehow do have the capacity to deal with this? No, the answer is to deal with the actual problem, which the Biden administration continues to steadfastly refuse to do and, in fact, make things worse. Hey, they sent a delegation to Mexico City to deal with AMLO, the Mexican president, and uh, AMLO uh, offered a list of conditions that are, are going to be required before he moves and does anything. So he's now he's well, now they, negotiating from from a position of strength against the U.S., Mary. You know, you know what they also uh, could do? They could do the same thing they did with uh, the the cabinet heads and the secret the secretaries, which is like just reiterate a rule. Like they've said, oh, we are ordering you to make sure you tell us when you're uh, not able to do your duties. That was already a rule. Here's a good thing you could do on the border: just reiterate the rule. By the way, you can't come over the border if you don't have the <laughs> yes. requisite papers to come across the border. So if, they were, if they're interested in restating rules and actually enforcing them, this would be a good place to do that. So, Mary, we've got about a minute left. Uh, Iowa's, of course, next week. There's a you know a dueling uh, debate on CNN tonight with Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, counter-programming on Fox with Donald Trump doing a town hall. Is this thing over in your mind? Is 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 a Hugh uh, proposed that it's already over with? That it's probably going to be Trump, and not much can change at this point. Are are you in that camp, or where are you at? Well, I know it's fat phobic to say this, but the fat lady has not sung, uh, and <laughs> so I do want to wait until some people actually vote. Um, and look, look, there are signs of life. Of course, look, caucuses are hard to poll. Yep. Um, the ground game matters. We've heard good things about the DeSantis camp's ground game in Iowa. 
uh, Nikki Haley, of course, making progress in New Hampshire. There is a, a certain guy in the race, Chris Christie, who could drop out if he truly wants to foil Trump in New Hampshire uh, and hand over his votes. I doubt that he will do that, but it's a thing you could do. So there are ways that this can become not an inevitability, and I'm interested in seeing that play out. I am too. Mary Catherine Ham, Getting Hammered is the podcast. You should subscribe to it. It is a terrific podcast. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by Matt Dixon. He is a uh, NBC senior political analyst. He's the author of Swap Monsters. Matt, as you may tell, I've got laryngitis. That's a good news for you. I don't get to talk much. You know, the thing about laryngitis is it's not very subtle, so I, I picked up on that. <laughs> yeah, it's not, I feel great. It's also not debilitating. I do have to ask you my obligatory first two questions for a new guest on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Number one. Was Alger Hiss a communist spy? Was Alger Hiss a communist spy? Yes. That's that's my first question. Yes. Um, uh, yes. Sure. Okay, very yes. good. You answered it. Number two. Have no, you read yes, the... Yes, I, I've just, your curveball is great, I will tell you. Uh, have you read <laughs> The Looming Tower? I have not read The Looming Tower. Okay, one out of two is not bad. I, I do that to get my GPS. If you know something about history, you answer you answer yes on his. And I think The Looming Tower is the most important book in the world for national security. But let's talk about Swamp Monsters. There's no, you, uh, the, there's no trap door or anything that's coming up underneath me, is there? No, we like, just I, I got one wrong. You got one right. <laughs> um, we always ask people to follow the Luntz rule, which is say the title of your book seven times so the audience can hear Swamp Monsters and they go out and buy Swamp Monsters and they go to Amazon and they get Swamp Monsters or they see Swamp Monsters in the airport and they buy Swamp Monsters. So I think I've done your seven, but that's each segment, so it's up to you. Tell us what Swamp Monsters is about. It's DeSantis and Trump. Yeah, well, Swamp Monster, Swamp Monster, Swamp Monsters, just to follow your rule. is The 10,000-foot perspective is sort of the, the evolution of, of Trump v. DeSantis over really going back to 2016, 2017. I, I think, you know, it's sort of a, one of the, the more important relationships in at least modern Republican politics. And it's really never what it seemed going back to even before when DeSantis was governor. They were public-facing allies, and they said everything they needed to do when, you know, politicians endorse each other. But behind the scenes, between their teams and quietly, there's always been 10 between the two. And it was really kind of uh, remarkable. They were able to put it together as a, a team forward facing for, for a long time. But as we uh, as we all know, at this point, it's 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 quite spectacularly falling apart as, as they got on the presidential stage. Now, Ron DeSantis did a town hall last night on Fox. It went very, very well. I listened to all the clips. We played them on the show today. Dwayne, my producer, was playing them. Do you think that that will have any measurable impact on Iowa? I, I don't particularly I, I will say even in his, his later debate performances, Ron DeSantis has gotten his sea legs a little bit better than than, you know, when he first got in the race, which was a difficult stretch for him. But at this point, it really kind of feels like the cake is baked. I mean, we had the, the Kim Reynolds endorsement and Bob Enterplatz, who are, you know, the Iowa kingmaker sort of types. And they really haven't moved the needle at all for a, an early state governor to to endorse in a, you know, a primary like that, especially you know, so long, you know, giving her so much time to campaign with DeSantis, I thought that would have moved the needle a bit. It really hasn't. So I, I think it's hard to imagine good performances, even though they, it was a good performance at, at a town hall is really going to, you know, really going to break through at this point. Now, Matt, the governor is very, very smart. He's a very talented man. He's been on this show dozens of times. I've only met him a couple of times. I know Casey DeSantis is very talented. Given all that, to what do you put uh, in in the unlikely, in the likely event he does not win in Iowa, to what do you attribute his failure? 
I, I think there's two things the way is I'm starting to sort through this. That I, I look at it. One is probable cycles. We're finding out the Republican primary electorate just isn't you know quite ready to move on from Trump at, at this point. So I think he kind of ran into that wall. And also, number two, the, the more I talk to people, there was a six month gap between him winning reelection by 20 points, which in 20 points, which in Florida, 20 points is a massive victory. It was historic. He had all this momentum that there was all this talk about America's governor. And he, he really had some juice at that moment. He didn't announce for six months. And that was that was planned. Uh, Florida had its legislative session in that period of time. And his messaging and what he was sort of talking about publicly was, hey, I have to be governor first. I got to handle this this stuff before whatever you know, whatever is next, even though we all knew he was going to run for president. And I, I think his poll numbers, public, at least public polling, reflected the idea that that six-month gap really hurt some of his momentum. And he just, when he, he launched, he kind of launched from a position of weakness in the sense that there was already a lot of people sort of tapping their watches thinking, you know, when is this guy going to, you know, when is this guy going to get in? You know, uh, Mitch McConnell likes to say, you can start too late, but you can never start too early. I personally called Jeff Rowe. And I, I personally called Adam Laxalt many times. I personally called... Uh, Governor DeSantis's Yale roommate and his ROTC roommate and begged them to start campaigning and they would not do it. Why do you think they didn't do it? They had this idea that if they well, they were doing the book tour at the time, which felt a lot like campaign stuff. So I think they thought that was checking that box. But they were under the impression early that if they sort of kept their head down and uh, they were, I think, starting to juxtapose the idea that, that DeSantis is the competent bureaucrat in the sense they've they've talked about this a lot, that DeSantis is better for sort of MAGA America first policies than Trump because he's more effective at getting things done. So I think their thought process was that focus on legislative session in Florida, the blocking and tackling elements of, of being governor, and that would somehow resonate. I think that's clearly proven to fall flat, but I, I do think that was the thought process at the time. I want to know who sold that. I want to know who owns that. Uh, Mitt Romney's loss in 2012 is squarely on the shoulders of Stuart Stevens. He designed ORCA. He designed the convention that went awry and didn't mention the, the, the veterans in the opening speech. He did everything wrong. Mitt did everything right. I usually can find the guy who shot the bullet that killed the campaign. I don't know who did it here. Who did it? Oh, I mean, it, it, his early campaign team was a, a, a Janera Peck, a woman who, a, a D.C.-based consultant who helped run his uh, re-election, and uh, Ryan Tyson, a very prominent uh, pollster here in Florida, who has been sort of in DeSantis's inner circle from the beginning. And there were a few others, but I, I, I can't, like, bring a specific name to you, but I, definitely his entire campaign infrastructure at the time to the degree there was one it was a very small team we're pushing this idea and ultimately at the end of the day uh ron and casey are, are sort of a team of two um she is casey DeSantis is by far his biggest advisor and the person he listens to the most so i'm i'm gonna go ahead and it, it is sort of a guess but an educated guess any to say made that big as far as when to launch and timeline stuff was something that was agreed to by by the two principals here yeah, I, I think the future lesson will be if you win the governorship and you intend to run for president, run the night you uh, accept the governorship and say, yeah. thank you. We'll, we'll right. do both. We can walk and chew gum. Also, a book tour is not a presidential campaign. People don't want to talk about your uh, book. Uh, they, they, they just don't. And you're not talking to the conservative activists who are voting. Yep. No, I, I agree with that. The, the whole book tour as campaign rally stop always had sort of a weird look to it, and it clearly wasn't as effective as they thought it was going to be. Okay, Matt, did he sit down with you during the writing of the book? 
No, he did. He did not. Uh, we have uh, Governor DeSantis and I have a, a, a long and interesting history. And unfortunately, I, I sent them a, a, a long list of specific questions and I wanted to be as uh, sort of open, as transparent as I could be. But we never got that call back. OK, let's switch over to President Trump. I've spoken to President Trump more often since his loss in 2020 than I have to Governor DeSantis, which tells you a little bit about availability. Did you talk to President Trump? Yeah. Well, we did not. Uh, again, we, we certainly reached out and we talked to most of his closest advisors, but I, I did not do a sit down Trump interview for this one. So what do you make of President Trump's overarching decision to campaign, but not to campaign with other candidates? It will come down to I will campaign, but I will not campaign on the stage with people who aren't within 50 points of me. I mean, I, I think it makes sense. I mean, there's two ways to look at it, right? Like, is that the, the best way to run a, a primary for, for primary sake? They're still competitive when there's, you know, multiple viable candidates in. But, you know, for him, I, I, I kind of get it. I mean, why would you want to get on a debate stage and help elevate people that, at least in most public polling, you're, you're up by 30 to 40 points on? So it, it, it makes sense to me. Um, you know, there are uh, absolutely going to be people who disagree with the decision, you know, notably the DeSantis and Haley folks who've been, you know, really the only line of attack that they've consistently used on him is the idea he won't debate. Um, so that's been something they've tried to focus on. But to this moment, no one really seems to care because it's not eroding his 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 lead. It's not really hurting him in a material way at all. So, I mean, if philosophically people think he should debate or he should engage with the rest of the field, I, I certainly understand that. But tactically, it makes all the sense in the world for him to avoid the rest of the crowd. Now, I, I do believe that you will hear an argument from Team DeSantis and Team De, De Haley that the Manhattan indictment, the Atlanta indictment, the Mar-a-Lago indictment, and the Jack Smith indictment in D.C., each of those added to Donald Trump's appeal to his base. I think that's true, but they did not contest the indictments. They didn't come out and say, this one's bad, this one's good, this one's bad. They, They just sat back and waited to see what would happen. I think they expected the opposite. Do you think that? I do. And, and none of them. Well, I mean, none of them are running against Trump. I mean, to this moment, the, the, there's ads, DeSantis stacking Haley and vice versa. I mean, the idea that they're really going to engage with, with Trump. I mean, the, the indictment sparked a ton of passion with, with his. I mean, we talked to a ton of people who are with uh, DeSantis prior to the in, indictments and the day after the first one, the, the day after the first one dropped last year, I talked to several who said, you know, we're we're flying our MAGA flags again. And, and the fact that DeSantis and Haley and, and the rest of the field when it was larger really never leaned into that stuff is sort of emblematic of the power that, that DeSantis still or excuse me, that Trump still has. I mean, they're not running against the, the front runner. They're not running against the former incumbent president. I don't know how you beat someone when when you decide to, to run your race that way. Well, I think they may have counted on January 6th, which also had the opposite effect. People were mad about the January 6th charade. It was not a committee in the view of conservatives. It was a inquisition. It was not fair. They vetoed Jim Banks as the ranking member and no ranking members to have from the beginning. And I think they thought January 6th would hurt Trump, but nobody actually watched January 6th who didn't already hate Trump. Is that your assessment? Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, the, the idea that, that people who were persuadable were going to, to the extent that there are persuadable voters left in the electorate, were going to be persuaded by that, I, I think, is, is, is a, a total fallacy. I mean, the idea that, that so the January 6th committee was going to somehow strip support from Trump, I just I, I never thought was was terribly a, a viable idea. And I, I think it's very much proven not to be that fact. Now, there is a debate tonight. 
Does Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley have anything they must do? And we'll talk about this after the break as well, that they must do to win tonight. I mean, I, I'm not sure there's a must-win checkbox or a you know box to check, but you know either of them. You know, the the adage about debates is you you know certainly can't win a race, but you can certainly lose one. So I, I think the edict for both is just to not you know light themselves on fire. Basically, at this point, I think that's where the bar is at. When we come back, I'm going to talk with Matt Dixon about how Governor DeSantis has governed and whether or not he has a political future if he loses in Iowa, and whether or not Casey DeSantis is in fact going to run for governor as is being whispered around the Sunshine State. Don't go anywhere, America. Matt Dixon's new book is Swamp Monsters. Swamp Monsters is available at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, at bookstores everywhere, and airports. Could read Matt Dixon's Swamp Monsters. I'll be right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt with Laryngitis, joined by Matt Dixon. Matt is the author of Swamp Monsters. Swamp Monsters, Trump versus DeSantis. Swamp Monsters is available in bookstores now. Matt, I want to go back to the DeSantis record in Florida. It's extraordinary. He has an extraordinary record, maybe the best record of any governor in recent memory. Do you think that's just a conservative view or an objective assessment? I believe it's an objective assessment. One of the things, I mean, certainly, uh, I guess, progressives would, would disagree with that. But one of the things that's notable about DeSantis is even to this moment, he's never been underwater in his polling as governor. Morning Consult does their their quarter, I think, quarterly gubernatorial polls. He has fallen a bit in the state as people view him as governor, not a presidential candidate. But he was at 51, 52 percent, which is lower than where he was. But I, I think part of so so clearly if he's above water, he, he's got some support here left in the state. And I also think the the track record as governor, the reason it makes it even a little more surprising that he's fallen flat as he has. If you'd have asked me late 2022 if I thought his record was going to be a, a good jumping off point to run for president and sort of speak to primary voters, I would have said absolutely. I, I mean, he's done you, the things in Florida, the primary. The second, I've, I've interviewed him a half dozen times, perhaps in the last two years. He is never not prepared. He can answer any question. He knows that Alger Hiss is a communist spy and he's read The Looming Tower. He can do it. And there are two kinds of guests. Those you can ask anything to and those you have to be afraid of every question. Ron DeSantis knows everything. He's very smart. He's a Yale, Harvard guy. He served his country in uniform. It only comes down to me to starting too late. And what Donald Trump taught us in 2016 and people refuse to lose is go everywhere every time. Every podcast except Alex Jones. Go to everything that's not crazy, show up every day, campaign all day. Did he do that? No, of, 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 he is now. I mean, it, it, let's say the past few months. I think all the descriptors you just used there apply to him, but certainly not in the beginning, as, as we talked about. I mean, he wasn't not only was he he not running for president formally or in any material way early on, early 2023, but he was sort of mocking he questions he would get about it, which everyone at that point understood he was preparing to run for president. There was really no doubt among anyone who was, who was watching this that he was going to do it. But if you asked him about it, it was like you were asking a, a, a ridiculous sort of question. And he would always sort of cavalierly sort of brush those, those, those questions off. So he really was trying to ignore the elephant in the room early on. And I think you're right. That's, that's ultimately what sort of sapped some of his momentum and, and you know, it was the beginning of where we are today. Now, Casey DeSantis is also brilliant. It has been tipped to me that she's running for governor of Florida, as is Matt Gates and Brian Donalds. Do you think Casey DeSantis is going to run as her husband is termed out? 
I, I'm uh, she's she's been in some polling here, so it's certainly something that's being discussed. I'm not totally bought into the idea she does it 100 percent. But I think if she did do it, she'd be you know, a very good candidate. I, I think there's some arguing that especially on a large stage in a speech type setting, she's got the, you know, the most political talent, the DeSantis family. She gives a very good speech. She comes across very well. She has a presence um, and, and she certainly speaks the, the policy language that, that, that conservatives like. And in but- Florida, Democrats. Oh, go, go ahead. Uh, I think Ron DeSantis is a very good candidate. I've seen him on the stump. I've seen him in person. I've talked to him on there. He's not some automaton. I mean, there's a mainstream message box in which he's put as being stiff. I don't see it. Do you see it? It, my comment there was less of an insult of his ability to give a stump speech and more a compliment of hers. I just think ah, she's okay. uniquely good in that. Right. that, that I no, mean, I, 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 I want to close really... with uh, Nikki Haley. Assume she does well tonight. Assume that. Chris Christie gets out. Can Nikki Haley beat Donald Trump and go on to the nomination? I, I don't think so. To, to my mind, the, the primary bake is a, cake is a bit baked. Who knows? There's a, she's going to do well in New Hampshire. She's she's got new life with with some momentum and a bunch of new donor money. So who knows? There's always puncher's chances, and this is politics, so anything can happen. But if if you're asking me right now if I think that, I don't. Yeah. Do you think Chris Christie will get out? Yeah, I mean, Chris Christie's going to have to get out at some point. I don't. But, I, don't I mean, before New Hampshire, moment, but I, before New Hampshire to endorse Haley. Um, no, I, I, I do not think before New Hampshire. Yeah, and that, so that I, I don't think he's going to do. My assessment again, I'm in Switzerland, is that Donald Trump wins Iowa and he wins New Hampshire because Chris Christie doesn't get out and he's the nominee in ten days. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I, I think that's. I think it's a fair timeline, and that's that's how I'm. That's kind of how the, the lens through which I'm viewing this. Uh, did you think we would be here uh, four years ago? That's a good question. I, I Yeah, I always thought there was a chance. I certainly thought there was a chance Trump would come back and run again. I I am slightly surprised and probably shouldn't be based on 2016, the, the quickness with which he sort of just overtook and dominated the rest of the field. I mean, the DeSantis especially, he had so much money and he had so much momentum out of his reelection. The fact that, you know, essentially before DeSantis even got in the race, it was Trump's to lose already. So I'm not surprised we're here necessarily. I think I am surprised at the speed of which Trump just, you know, came in and dominated. Everything. Let me close with my final. I just you're a professional political reporter and you're objective. I'm a professional conservative political reporter. I try and be objective. Donald Trump learned the new rules before anyone else did. He learned them in 2015, and he has never not, which is make your own headlines, go everywhere you want, say whatever you want. If you're on TV, you're winning. Do you agree with that, Matt? 100%. He, he, he wrote the new rules. He didn't follow them. You know, those are the Trump rules. And the Trump rules, it's going to be amazing. Matt Dixon, congratulations on Swamp Monsters, Trump versus DeSantis in bookstores now. My interview with Speaker Johnson has been transcribed. Thank you, Dwayne. The audio and transcript are up. I will be back tomorrow. Prednisone, God willing, and laryngitis permitting. Thank you, Adam and Harley. Thank you, Dwayne. I'll talk to you on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Thank you, Matt Dixon. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.